and welcome to episode number three of Arts Leaders Podcast. This episode features the first of many interviews that I recorded at the 7th World Summit on Arts and Culture, which was recently held in Malta, and I would like to sincerely thank IFACA, the International Federation of Arts Council and Culture Agencies, and Arts Council Malta for facilitating these interviews. During the summit, I had the pleasure of speaking with 15 arts leaders from 11 different countries, including Cambodia, Israel, Palestine, Africa, India and Singapore, and these will all be released over the next couple of weeks. To get notifications of when new episodes are uploaded, please subscribe through iTunes, SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts and follow Arts Leaders Podcast on social media. This episode is with Robert Palmer, an independent consultant from the UK who has worked for almost 25 years on various European Capital of Culture projects as well as spending seven years as the Director of Culture and Culture and National Heritage for the Council of Europe in Strasbourg as well as working as an advisor to UNESCO and the European Commission. We discuss various aspects of the European Capital of Culture initiative, including his work with the city of Galway in Ireland, which was recently announced as a Capital of Culture for 2020. And we also discuss Valletta's upcoming designation in 2018, which is where the interview was recorded at the World Summit on Arts and Culture. 2013, I was the Director of Culture, Cultural and Natural Heritage at the Council of Europe, which is an intergovernmental organization uh, which responds to the needs of 48 European countries. So the European Union has 28 after Brexit, maybe 27, (laughs) Um, uh, but the Council of Europe has 48, which includes countries like the Russian Federation, all the countries of the Balkans, Ukraine, Turkey and so on. So after seven years there, I thought I should reinvent myself, so I returned home, which was Edinburgh, and am now a kind of independent consultant or coach. I work with many international projects, uh, projects that either deal with uh, regeneration and cities, including European capitals of culture, which I've worked on for many, many, many years, but also projects concerning cultural policy and strategy, and other projects that are about peace building using the arts. So this combination of projects are, is what keeps me going. So you, are you a firm believer then in the instrumental value of culture? I think this is part of a, a, a very complex set of values uh, where culture can be sometimes used in an instrumental way, but also is a vitally important force in its own right. And unfortunately, from my perspective, the pendulum has swung too far in the instrumental direction in terms of creative industries uh, focusing on what is quantifiable in terms of economic impact and less to do with fundamental issues of cultural rights, uh, individual expression, and particularly the right of an artist to create and communicate. So uh, this pendulum swings back and forth, and uh, I'm part of this pendulum. You have to go with the flow a lot. <laughs> I go with the flow, but I keep with my convictions, which really starts with a fundamental set of values about culture and what it means in society. And where it should, I mean, the, we're talking at the, the Arts Summit, the World Arts Summit, so all of these topics about leadership and what the role of arts is in, in the modern world in the 21st century. What role do you see arts and culture as playing in, in this kind of challenging environment and challenging situation that we find ourselves? 
Uh, arts and culture uh, can play many different roles. I don't think there's a, a single role. First of all, it is a means in terms of provoking free expression, people's ability to say what they think uh, in a world uh, which is, seems to be moving in an opposite direction. Uh, in terms of what I often call self-censorship, people's reluctance to say what they think for fear that they'll be an outsider or be rejected by a system. Uh, it's also arts and culture is a, a means by which one can really hold on to fundamental values. And I think society now has moved away from a number of key values of self-respect, of equality. Uh, values which genuinely understand the nature of what a human being is and how ultimately we are all the same, what connects us, what unites us rather than what keeps us apart. Uh, how to live together, culture and the arts are very much a part of that. So these are, are some of the main motives for me, but I work within systems, within governments, either local governments in terms of cities or national governments, or sometimes regional governments, which hold other value systems, which focus more on economic and social ends. So I'm kind of caught in this dichotomy between a set of personal values, but trying to influence the systems around me rather than reject them and not work with them. Tell me a little bit more about your work with the Galway Capital of Culture and what the work you did in Ireland. Um, Galway has just been recently announced as Capital of Culture in 2020, but you worked quite closely with the, the, the organising committee of that. Well, I've been involved with uh, European Capitals of Culture for many years, uh, almost 25 years. I've really seen the history of this entire programme through the European Union, where two cities each year are given this special designation as European Capital of Culture and cities compete. So in 2020, it was the turn of Ireland and Croatia. And in Ireland, there were four cities that bid to be European capital of culture. And the city that asked me, and I was very keen to work with, was, was Galway. And when I arrived in Galway, uh, one of the fundamental questions for me was, why do you want this? It's expensive, it requires enormous investment in time and human resources. And what is, what is it, what's there in, for you in this? And the city of Galway, for those that don't know, is a relatively small city uh, on the west of Ireland, uh, known for its kind of innovation and creativity, a fantastic music scene there, wonderful international arts festival. But there was a feeling that Galway was, had reached the end of an era. An end of an era uh, with what they called the class of 72 people who grew up in Galway leading all the arts and cultural organizations with very, very little room for emerging artists and innovation. So they felt this could be a trigger, European capital of culture, to work with what we conceived of as the new wave of innovators, of energizers, of creators. And in fact, the title of the entire project was Making Waves. Making waves, uh, of course, in Galway, making waves across Ireland, making waves globally. And so many of the projects that have been conceived were based on this idea of influence, how one could make sustainable change. So I arrived in the city and was just met by lots and lots of creative energy, um, immediately grasping on to this idea of European capital of culture and how they could use this as a catalyst 
for major change. And over a two-year period, working with many, many hundreds of people, developed a set of proposals where Galway, in the end, announced last July, was the winner of the European Capital of Culture for 2020. So if you go to Galway now, you'll see the streets lined with banners, Galway 2020, and many of those people who were part of the uh, development of this proposal are now making it happen, plus many thousands of others who've just been uh, inspired by this open opportunity in front of them. There are three main themes that Galway decided to work uh, with, uh, very uh, important ones for Galway. One was landscape, and the west of Ireland, the landscape itself is totally inspirational and actually drives identity. The second is language. Galway in the county is bilingual. Irish language is a very important issue, but minority languages across Europe are equally very important. And this also is bound up in identity. And the third major theme is migration. Uh, I mean, the Irish were migrants. They experienced being migrants. Uh, they understand what it is to go and to be left behind. And now there's a, a whole new wave of migration uh, coming to Ireland, people from Syria and the Middle East, uh, also from Eastern Europe, uh, that are experiencing the same problem. So these are the three driving themes that Galway has chosen for their, their cultural capital year. What is your experience of cities that don't get the funding or they don't get the capital of culture? For example, in this case, we had Dublin also, we had Limerick and the Three Sisters who also bid for the same thing. And obviously your campaign is quite an extravagant and a big campaign that lasts a couple of years. Do you have experience of working with cities that have done all this research, have done all the work and didn't get the funding? And what happens when they don't get the funding? Uh, yeah, it's a very important question because uh, only one city can win. So in the Irish competition, there were four losers, so to speak. In Italy, uh, where, which hosts the European Capital of Culture for 2019, the year before uh, Ireland, there were 32 cities that bid. That means 31 cities lost. And what I've learned is if the approach and the bid is really embedded in the needs of a city that can inspire citizens, that can be the result of collective action, there is such momentum that's been generated that you can't stop it, win or lose. Unfortunately, there's only one prize, but the momentum can continue. However, in those cities where perhaps a strategy has been imposed, perhaps a local steering committee of the great and the good people who run arts organizations in the city take control and more or less uh, develop the program and projects themselves, there is no embedding and they, they don't continue. So I think the strategy of creating the whole bid for European capital of culture is as important, if not more important, than what you do in terms of winning and how you deliver what you promised. So it should be a grassroots approach rather than once you get the money you bring in international artists and you make it really nice for a year, but then after the funding is gone, there's nothing left. Yeah, rather so than the word grassroots, uh, I prefer the word collective. <laughs> because grassroots uh, often eliminates those who perhaps are also in positions of influence and power. Mm. So it's not top-down, but it is totally collective where people are equal. And uh, I've learned a lot in terms of how one should go about organizing projects and programs these days. And I think there's possibly too little uh, collective action and too much of kind of individual entrepreneurial 
action, which is one of the reasons why uh, co co collection, the actual collection of energies seems to be sustainable in the long term, where individual actions last as long as the individual either has sometimes the finance or, or the, the energy to do it. Um, and so this kind of collective action is a continuing cycle of renewal, rebirth, uh, death and birth, people getting too tired, others coming in. So collectivity, I think, is, is a really important way forward for the arts sector generally. Take me back to your, your origin story, um, where you grew up, how you got involved in, in getting with the European Capital of Cultures, and your cultural upbringing, how you came in touch with, with the arts and culture. Well, for me, I always had this inbuilt as a child. I remember even at seven years of age, uh, where the other boys were playing football, I was writing plays and getting my friends to perform them in my garden. There was something in me. That you just uh, wanted to create uh, to create and work with other people in this way, and as sort of time went on, this burgeoning need in me kind of went out, and I became a writer and theatre director to start with, which was not uh, big enough for me in a way because I realized that directing a play or writing a play is a very individual act. Uh, of course, directing a play with actors is collective, but not big enough. I think I was much more interested in societal change. So this then moved me into being the director of an arts council. First of all, a director of a, of a, a very large arts centre in Scotland, and then the director of the arts council responsible for financing uh, the arts. And then I then moved to the city of Glasgow, which had won the title of European Capital of Culture way, way back in 1990 to try to find a way of using the arts in terms of revitalizing a city which had sat out much of the 20th century, a poor city, a city with both economic and social terms had enormous problems and relations to de deprivation, Ab absolutely, it, it passed them by. And then I realized, I spent 10 years there on this project, 87 to 90, 1997, realizing the importance of culture in terms of renewal and what this could actually do in cities. And then was asked by the mayor of Brussels in Belgium to go and do the same thing there. They were the European capital of culture in the year 2000. So I then had the experience of directing two cities. And then the European Commission asked me to write a report, undertake a study on 40 cities that had been given this designation since 1985, where the whole program started, until 2005. And so in this evaluation of these 40 cities, I learned lots of lessons about what works, success factors and failure factors. And after that, I became interested in a wider notion of cultural policy, and then was attracted to become the director of uh, culture and cultural heritage and natural heritage of the Council of Europe, which is based in Strasbourg, which is this configuration of 48 European countries. I was there for seven years. And then when I finished that, I had this urge to maybe share my experience with lots of different people. So I've now gone back into a kind of consultancy. And part of that consultancy is working with these European capitals of culture. I'm working with three at the moment. Galway, that we've been talking about, uh, the designation for 2020, Matera, small city in the south of Italy that has been designated as the European Capital of Culture for 2019, and also uh, 2018, the city of Leowarden. So I think I'm kind of drawn 
not to cities that have huge reputations, but cities that have a lot going internally where there's an innovative force. So I have those projects for European capitals of culture, but work with many other cities in terms of helping them to, to develop cultural policies and strategies. The focus of the European capital cultures has changed ever since the Glasgow project, if I'm not mistaken. That was one of the first times where they used culture to aid social regeneration and cultural regeneration um, of a city that, as you said, post-industrial times, it kind of it was left to rack and ruin, there was a lot of problems with it, and they used the capital of culture to instill more confidence in, in the country. Do you see there as being a, a dramatic change between what the capital of culture used to be, which was to celebrate the big cities, Vienna, Paris, the big cultural cities, to what it is now, focusing on much, much smaller cities, or cities who are generating and using it to, for regeneration? Yeah, I think there's been considerable shifts from designating those cities as a kind of a reward or title uh, for what they had already achieved. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in the distant past, now the designation is given to those cities that are looking to the future. Cities who can use the title partly as a trigger for not only city development, but an increasing focus on what is called the European dimension of the European capital of culture. So the emphasis is not so much on city regeneration, on city development, but how a city can reposition itself in Europe and how it can use the title to make connections and to draw attention to the importance of culture across Europe. Um, I was also on the judging panel for five years and this period is the period where that criterion is probably the dominant one, where all the cities can claim how much the title would do for their city. But the key question is, what will you contribute to the rest of Europe? And this is the question that the cities struggle with. And this is why in Galway, for example, these large themes of language, landscape and migration are not just themes relevant to Galway and the region that they inhabit in Ireland, but they are profound European themes, and hopefully themes that will have resonance in many cities and many countries beyond Galway and beyond Ireland. Is that a quality you would look for as a judge on the judging panel, that you're looking at using kind of the local culture, but addressing larger themes across the European... It is really the dominant criterion. The other important criterion is the way in which citizens are engaged, that this is not a project led by the traditional cultural leaders. It's not a project for the opera company or the theatre company or the local festivals. It's how citizens can genuinely engage in the development partly of their own city but making connections across Europe. So that's the second criterion. One is the European dimension. The second is citizens' engagement, real honest engagement in the process of developing the projects and also delivering the projects. Is that a general change in what arts and cultural leadership should be about? Obviously with the, the Arts Summit um, and the podcast here, it's also called Arts Leaders. So we focus a little bit on, on leadership. Has that shifted from the top-down approach to leadership, that there's one leader and he leads in the traditional sense of it, to a more collective leadership, that there's a lot of um, consultation with, with different people? Has that completely shifted in one way? The it is shifting. Uh, I mean, I call the leadership style of leader in the front uh, of a hierarchy which he or she 
controls, uh, kind of leadership 1.0 in in development terms. Um, It then became a little bit more participatory, and I think even many years ago, leaders felt they cannot lead alone, they need to collect around them supporters. And this is what I will call leadership 2.0. And understanding that you can't do it alone, but you need others, but there's still a leader in the front. I think there is a new leadership style, which I will call leadership 3.0, which is genuinely collective, which respects what I'm calling shared leadership. Maybe there's no one in the front, or maybe the people in the front continually change. And the way in which a number of different talents can be collected together in the form of what we call leadership is becoming very, very important principle. And I think the complexities in which we are working with today in arts and culture and in every other domain, there is no longer individuals, either politically or in the social fields or, or, or certainly in the cultural field, that can do it alone. So this emerging new style of leadership is new in some countries, and some countries are already practicing it. But it is a leadership style which is not anymore about ego, but it is about developing what I call eco, ecosystems. So leaders were largely about people driven through individual personal visions, personal passion, personal experience. Now I think leadership is about the management of an ecosystem how a system functions, how it connects or disconnects. And therefore, there are many different players, many different parts within this system that need to be led in different ways, but collectively. So my view is this leadership 3.0 is really what the world now needs. Also in a political sense, uh, I look at the US elections or any elections anywhere else that are going on, and I feel we're still in a binary system basically competition between personalities. I think there needs to be a growing understanding of maturity and about this whole notion of leadership in a very, very complex world. You cannot do it alone. It's got to be done together. About cultural diversity as well and having open borders, it's another topic that is being discussed over these few days. Um, How do you see the situation with Europe and especially with Malta that are opening up doors and kind of collaborating with a lot of different people in this collective approach versus what's currently happening in the UK where they're almost starting to build walls around themselves. Where's that going to go and what impact will that have? Well, what I see happening is a battle, really. Uh, Again, it's a huge dichotomy between two positions. One is about openness and the other is about sovereignty or control. And the battle is going on in every country. Uh, In certain countries, the control factor, the control faction, is definitely working. The sovereignty faction is winning. And in other countries, they are desperately trying to maintain this sense of, of openness. But I'm very frightened due to the increase of nationalism uh, across Europe, um, a kind of selfishness which appears to work very much again against what was called the European project, which was again about collectivity. It was about you know, genuine sharing uh, from a we, a we understanding to a me and I understanding. And I think this is happening not just in the uh, UK with the Brexit, but I see the growth of right-wing movements in other countries and even the European Union itself 
perhaps beginning to think, particularly with this, with this migration issue, which they feel is causing enormous political, economic, and social issues to begin to close borders. So I'm actually quite worried about the, the current trend. And I think uh, unless the, the, those that are on the open side, the open factions, can mobilize sufficient support, my fear is over the next 10 years we'll be living in a world which is more closed than it was in the previous 10 years. Does culture have the power to break down those walls and to open those doors? And what responsibility do cultural leaders have to use their, their art and their culture in that kind of way to try and open these doors? Well, what I've learned, uh, I mean, after 30 years of working in the cultural and arts sector is culture alone is not enough. I mean, culture is not an antidote. It's not a sort of medicine to cure the ills of the world. It won't make poor people rich and it won't make unhappy people happy. You know, and it, it won't uh, cure the, the huge uh, battles, that battlefields that, that, that are, are currently in play in different parts of the world. But they're part of this antidote, part of the solution, uh, as long as there is a genuine interconnection with many other components of the solution. And unfortunately, arts and culture is often sidelined it is put to one side, not only in terms of finance, but not treated seriously. I think if it was an integral part of a broader argument concerning peace building or economic change or social development across the world, if it was really integrated into the thinking, I think it could be a very powerful part of a toolkit that has within it many different tools. What are some of those other tools? There needs to be profound shifts in economic tools. I think it would be very, very naive to think that without significant economic change, without a shift to the, the current paradigms of economy, which is about the rich getting richer and the poor staying more or less the same or getting poorer, uh, about the way in which economy is organized. I was really pleased, one of the very few, at the collapse of the banking system in 2008. Global economies were declining, and I thought, oh, now there's an opportunity in the face of this crisis to really reshape the economy, to actually look at the fundamental principles on which every country now, this principle of neoliberalism that every country is following. Neoliberalism is relatively new in terms of economic change, and it's been shown, proved that it doesn't actually work in a global Sense. So one could begin to look at new economic models. Similarly, in, on, in terms of social models, there are new social models that are developing. As I said, based on collective action, uh, based on spirit of cooperation, based on new types of partnership, based on a greater appreciation of diversity, and a real acknowledgement of what I call interculturalism in society as an asset People are looking at migrants as a problem. I think they're an asset in a changing society, bringing with them different views, different understandings, different economic models, uh, different types of motivations which create different identities. I think that's very healthy. And to reject them is rejecting uh, an opportunity to shift an understanding of how the economy works. So I think it really is a kind of a table on four legs, if you like. And the culture and the arts is one of those legs. The economy is certainly another one of those legs. A third is 
social issues that have to be dealt with. And the fourth, very, very important, is ecology, the environment, the world in which we inhabit, the land. If you don't have all four legs in this table, I think it's very difficult to, to, to change, to really provoke change. And unfortunately, many of the attempts to change operate with two or three of these legs, but not all four. During your short time in, in Valletta, and for what you know about Valletta and Malta, what should the priorities be coming up towards 2018, when Valletta will be the European capital of culture? What does it need to be putting in place now to make that a success and to make a difference? I think it, it, the letter 2018 and Malta should be courageous enough, brave enough, to expose some of the real divisions and problems being experienced on these islands. That is not only to celebrate what is a vibrant historic culture and a very important contribution to civilization and the history of the world, but to actually look at Malta as a kind of microcosm, if you like, a series of dysfunctions of how society in Malta is still divided. What is its role within the wider Mediterranean? How can it reach out more and make uh, more connections? How can those who are disadvantaged really not be given advantages but be brought into the, the whole the whole picture. What Valletta has is its small size and I think it could become I'll call a laboratory for change really at the cusp of change with brave projects brave intentions and some some huge risk-taking you know to to to, to really push the, the boats out so to speak, in Malta, sh to show the world that there are alternatives. And this is what I'm looking to see from Valletta 2018. Are you looking for, will you be visiting during the year? Of course, I'll be yes. visiting Valletta 2018. I work very closely with the sister European capital of culture, which is Leeuwarden in, in the Netherlands. A number of projects they are, they are doing uh, together. Uh, and I think these two small cities Valletta in European terms and Leowarden also in European terms and global terms even could make a difference with bravery and courage. And I hope that you know, all those who are involved in participating in that year will use this as an opportunity for change, for innovation, to break the mold, to do something different, to actually begin to argue for a different Europe, a Europe which is about connectivity, a Europe which is about peace, uh, a Europe which is about unity. Well, thank you very much, Robert Palmer, <laughs> for talking to me today and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you very thank much. You very much. <laughs>